It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So on Monday, I gave a message called uh, Chicago Boy, and I was talking about the power of storytelling in it, of... You know how you, you keep the camera on the, the wallet that's on the coffee table or the end table and then linger a little longer and that's like storytelling 101. You're foreshadowing something to come. Do you guys remember in that message I said that uh, when I mentioned the signet ring that was Emmett's father's and then I said, this is gonna come back and this is gonna be important. Someone after that message said, so whatever happened with the signet ring? And I was like, how horrifying, I forgot to mention the signet ring. So I I don't even wanna give away what happened in Monday's episode if you haven't heard it, but uh, the signet ring is important because it's the only way they could recognize uh, Emmett Till. So I'll just say it that much, uh, but that was supposed to come out and obviously it was supposed to be a key point and it didn't, so sorry about that for all of you that have been irritated ever since Monday. Now I finally am back for Daily Thunder to clarify. But uh, this particular message, here we are in a series called Spiritual Lessons for Black and White America. Episode 30, which is always a fun time whenever you get to an even number like that. Uh, Episode 30 in the series, we are cresting into the 1960s, which if if you guys are familiar enough with American history, know the 60s are a, a rambunctious time. Uh, where everything that all our old moorings are being tested and everything is shifting. So the reason I'm going through this series is to help us understand practically, but more importantly, spiritually, where we're at as a nation. And this time period is of the utmost importance in, in defining who we are. And so much of what we have been dealing with as far as racially, because when you say black and white America, what do we mean by that? Well, racial tensions are a huge issue in this 60-year period between 1914 and 1974. Uh, But you also have everything, every one of our memories is in black and white. And so, uh, you know, we have black and white television that's coming into existence. We have black and white movies. And color is like, has been invented now that we're in the 60s. However, still photojournalism is almost always going to use uh, black and white. And so most of our memories, even up through Watergate in 1974, are going to be in black and white of this time period. Isn't that weird to think you could have memory in black and white? It's because that's the only way we've seen it. It's the only way we've known it, unless I guess it's recreated in a movie and then we, we see it that way. But uh, there's also a doggedness in this time, a black and whiteness to opinion, where it's sharp opinion to the point where if you, know, you don't agree with me, well, then you deserve to die. And that's an extremity that we saw earlier in our history called the Civil War. And we're seeing it now as well in this time where it's very sharp opinion. And ironically, the reason I'm sharing this is because that's where we're at now. Again, in the 2020s, we're in this time period where the disagreements are so sharp, so dogged, that it's sort of like, if you don't side with me, then I would sort of like you wiped from the earth. And that's, that's an extremity that is very unhealthy, and it shows a breakdown of society, and we definitely are showing it now. This particular one, is called, this particular episode is called The Freedom Riders. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I don't, to call it a fun story is, is an odd way of describing it, because I don't know that I'd call it fun. It's a fun message. I really, it's, it's a very empowering message, a very strong message. And so I'm excited to see 
how you guys digest it, but it's a, it's a real event. This is a real group of people called the Freedom Riders, and uh, it's probably a little different than what you expect. I think you probably think of motorcycles uh, right now when, when you hear that, but uh, first of all, this is going to start in the 50s, which is where we have been with a Supreme Court ruling, and it's called Brown versus the Board of Education, and tech, that's typically how it's known as is Brown, even. Uh, and it's a court case that is significant in U.S. history. But then the shorter, you know, the other short way of saying it is Brown versus the Board of Education. The long way of saying it is the Brown, Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. And that's a little longer than most people prefer. But on May 17th, 1954, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that state-sanctioned segregation of public schools was a violation of the 14th Amendment and was therefore unconstitutional. Now, to some of you, that might not mean anything, but in this time period, which was called Jim Crow America, Jim Crow is a hard thing to describe because it sounds like a guy named Jim and his last name's Crow. And Jim Crow was actually never a character. He was a character in sort of a vaudeville act where a white guy painted himself black and acted stupid uh, and, you know, to sort of mock the black people. And so this, this idea has been around since the mid-1800s. Jim Crow is a statement of segregation. It's like, okay, we now because of the emancipation of Abraham Lincoln, all right, all right, so we're equal uh, governmentally speaking, you know, constitutionally. All right, we're equal, but we're separate. Now, equal but separate has been the ruling dogma in America since late 1800s. So this entire series so far has shown America in this time where blacks and whites are separate. Okay, we're still in the same country and we have to put up with each other, but if we're gonna put up with each other, we're gonna do it this way. And so we have separate bathrooms, separate drinking fountains, separate places on the bus to sit. There's a whole bunch of things that I've gone through in this time which are hard for us to fathom and hard for us to comprehend, but this is America. This is our history, and so it helps for us to at least digest it and, and go through this. And so at this time, they had separate schools. And so the white schools were over here and the black schools would be over here. And the two do not mix. And what becomes evident somewhere in the mid-50s is that, so we're separate but equal, or we're equal but separate. However, that separation, there is a discrepancy because the white schools have all the good stuff and the black schools seem to not. And so you start to see, but it's very difficult as a black person to say anything about it. And I don't know if you guys remember why, but if you stand up against the system as it is, the Jim Crow system, then you become an example of the fact that you shouldn't have spoken. And so it's hard, it's daring for, for a black person to step up and to speak out. It really helps if the white people speak out for them. However, that isn't happening very often because the white people uh, don't want to take the risk socially either oftentimes. And so this is creating a tension in our culture where it's becoming more and more obvious that something is wrong. You know, why it takes a, a culture a while to wake up to things that are incorrect, it, it's sort of hard to describe, but that's happening uh, at this juncture. So desegregation. So what is going to happen in that uh, ruling of Brown versus the Board of Education is it's going to be a declaration from the federal government, the highest court in the land, saying you are not allowed to segregate schools. And so the federal government is saying you must desegregate or what's called integrate uh, the schools together. 
And that's not going over so well, by the way, guys. So this is the concept of integrating black children into white schools. This is going to lead to something known in history as massive resistance. It's the defiance of the southern states. So the Supreme Court has issued a ruling, but what if the southern states say no? Ironically, this is a replay of the Civil War right here. And so the Civil War is an issue at its core of something known as states' rights. Basically saying, well, we as a state can make our own decisions, and if what you're ruling as a nation doesn't agree with our state, then we're going to stand as a state. I mean, it's almost like the symbol of the Confederate flag right there is states' rights. So there's a U.S. senator from Mississippi in 1954. His name is James Eastland. There's a picture of James. Uh, <clears throat> not exactly sure if I would say I'm a fan of James Eastland. Uh, this is just a little background on James Eastland, written by Beverly Gage from her book, G-Man. James Eastland has been, had been born in 1904 into a crucible of Mississippi racial violence. Just months before his birth, his father had led a lynch mob seeking vengeance for the murder of Eastland's uncle. The mob killed at least three people before finally capturing the alleged murderers, a black couple. Eastland's relatives beat the suspects, cut off their fingers and ears, and tortured them with corkscrews before burning the couple alive in front of a crowd of a thousand strong. This was very normal in Mississippi. And so James is going to be named after his uncle, James Eastland. Beverly Gage continues, upon arriving in Washington in 1941, speaking of James Eastland, he had carved out a place for himself as an outspoken champion of white supremacy. He opposed any federal policy that might disrupt it. So you can just imagine how well he's digesting Brown versus the Board of Education. So here's his declaration publicly. The Southern states will not abide by nor obey this legislative decision by a political court. So we don't care if the Supreme Court said it. We're not doing it. Uh-oh. This is what's called massive resistance. So massive resistance, the explicit plan by states from Virginia to Mississippi and Texas to defy the Supreme Court order of desegregation. Beverly Gage says it this way, Eastland's Mississippi quickly emerged as a spiritual and practical center of massive resistance. Isn't it interesting to say a spiritual center? Uh, because th th what, what is a struggle for me is, in studying this is so many people, these are all church-going people. And you know, ironically, most of the civil rights movements and, and the, the black community that is rising, they're church-going people. And so you have a, both sides are praying you know, for God to preserve Americanism. And it's just, it's a very interesting thing to process and digest. But Eastland's Mississippi quickly emerged as a spiritual and practical center of massive resistance, the first state to declare its rebellion and to spawn groups dedicated to seeing the cause through. In the summer of 1954, a rally in Indianola that's Mississippi, marked the launch of the Citizens Council of Mississippi, intended to provide the self-anointed best white citizens of the state with an outlet for organizing against Brown. So remember, the summary for Brown versus the Board of Education is just Brown. The group ostensibly emphasized legal means, contrasting itself with the lynchers and vigilantes of the Ku Klux Klan, but its rhetoric often obscured any real distinction between legal and illegal, nonviolent and violent. In retaliation for registering to vote or attempting to attend white schools, the citizens' councils recommended boycotts of black-owned stores, the firing of black employees, and the calling in of debts. So how are you going to handle this in Mississippi? Because if these black people feel like they can go to these schools, if they feel like they can even vote 
This is in 1954, guys, that the Citizens Council, which makes up the best, I'm putting quotes around that, of the white community in Indianola, are basically going to say, let's boycott all black-owned stores, let's fire any black employees. So if you have any black employees in your business, fire them. That'll teach them a lesson. And especially if they're going to think of organizing in any front of, of trying to integrate into schools or if they're going to try and vote. And how about this? Calling in debts. Imagine if your bank just called in your debt. Well, some of you may not have a mortgage on a home, but it's a pretty big deal uh, if your bank just says, yeah, you need to pay up right now. And so this is a form of intimidation. This is Mississippi getting back at the black community because of the Supreme Court ruling. J. Edgar Hoover uh, is in a private conference with President Eisenhower. So President Eisenhower is going to be the president from 1952 to 1960, basically. So those eight years. And so all of this is happening during his uh, presidency. And J. Edgar Hoover is going, to try, is going to be explaining to Eisenhower sort of the situation in the South. And he's going to say, these racial traditions have been handed down from generation to generation. White Southerners are terrified by the specter of racial intermarriages and the prospect of social equality. The current tensions represent a clash of culture when the protection of racial purity is a rule of life ingrained deeply as the basic truth. So in the South, the basic truth, I mean, that's a, it's a funny way of describing it, the basic truth. What is the most basic truth of what we call America to the South? Racial purity. That is the essence of it. So the idea of Americanism in the South, I have it on the screen, is racial purity. Now that's odd for many of us because I'm going to share you what the idea is. The, the idea of Americanism to the black community as they're fighting back is what would be called equality under law. And what's interesting is I would say not just the black community, but probably most of us in here. That's what we would say too. What, the essence of the American experiment is that there's law and even the king, or in our case, the president and the Congress are under it. Everyone is under law and everyone is treated equal in it. Could you imagine a basketball game where one team, they could go out of bounds and it doesn't, they don't get whistled? Uh, or they could shoot an air ball and it's called two points? It's like, uh, well, that's not fair. That's exactly right. So the makeup of the American system is that everyone plays by the same rules. It's equality under law. And if you're really good at basketball, you will succeed at basketball. If you really stink at basketball, too bad. But you're going you're gonna to still have the same referee calling the same thing. If it's out of bounds, it's out of bounds for both teams, for every player. The ball has to go through the rim, in through that net to get two points. And if it doesn't, it's not two points. And so what we have in America is the black community is saying, the white people seem to be able to go out of bounds, and we don't. The white people can shoot an air ball, and they're still getting two points. Uh, could we make sure we have a refing system that actually is equal here? And I have to admit, guys, I'm going to vote with that one. I'm going to say, yeah, that, that is the essence of our country. Racial purity is such a sensitivity point for the South. They are afraid of racial intermarriage. That's why even dating, a black and a white couple dating, there could be a lynch uh, situation that comes about just for that. The Southern Manifesto. All the Southern Democrats in Congress declared the Brown decision a clear abuse of judicial power and stated that they vowed to resist the intrusion of outside meddlers, including federal authorities who attempted to enforce the ruling of desegregation. So basically, the South's saying, if you want to get us to integrate our schools, you're going to have to come down with federal power, and we will resist it. 
And so this is like, we have a little forming of another civil war here. I mean, this isn't looking good, guys. And it's all over the issue of desegregation, to go against the uh, time and... Uh, well, I don't want to say time-tested, the time-worn uh, Jim Crow laws. So federal law versus state law, three landmark decisions by the Supreme Court that were going unenforced. This is a hard one for me, like, politically. Remember, I'm approaching this uh, not as a conservative or as a Republican. I'm also not approaching this as a liberal or a Democrat. I'm trying to approach all these things as just a Christian. And I'm trying to have no bias or no spin, it is interesting because, you know, I do have a background in constitutional law, and I do understand the importance of states' rights. And so I don't want to ever d dismiss that. Uh, what if our federal government goes rogue, and they're asking states to do things that goes against the conscience of the state? It's like if they said, you know, uh, hey, abortion has to be legalized nationwide, and a state says, but we don't want it in our country, you can understand the value of states' rights. And uh, so... This is a tug and pull because in this situation, what you have is a ruling at the federal level saying, you guys need to integrate. And what if the states are saying, we don't want to integrate. The people of our state don't want to integrate. Well, they didn't ask the black people, but the people of our state don't want to integrate, say, say the politicians. So at this time, there were three landmark decisions by the Supreme Court that were going unenforced. So this isn't the only one. Way back in 1946, Morgan versus Virginia found that segregated bus seating was unconstitutional. You can't tell a black person where to sit. If the seat is open, they can sit there. You can't create a colored section is what they would call it. And that's 1946. So Rosa Parks is, you know, sitting, is going to be arrested in 1955 for not moving from her seat. Okay, so in other words, the, the Supreme Court had already ruled something, but down in the South, they, they had their own laws, and they called them, you know, states' laws. In 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education, which is the one we're talking about now, found that segregating schools was unconstitutional. Then in 1960, Boynton versus Virginia found that segregation of interstate transportation facilities, including bus terminals, was unconstitutional. When you're in a bus terminal, there was a waiting area for the black people and a waiting area for the white people. And then on the bus, there's a colored section and there's a white section. And the Supreme Court's going to say, uh, unconstitutional. That, that doesn't fit our country. That isn't how we work here. And the ruling also included the declaration that separate water fountains, lunch counters, restrooms, and seating areas runs unconstitutional as well. Now, for many of us in here, we can't figure out why this was an issue in the first place. I mean, we're, we're just really struggling uh, to see. And that's partly because of all of this that has happened. We, we don't live in a time period where this is a clear issue. If we lived in the time of, of slavery, there would be some of us that would not see it as maybe something that we should get rid of. It's just like, it's just part of the culture. It's just the society we live in. But now, when looking back on slavery, we're thinking, what were we thinking? Why were we doing that? Why did we build an entire economic system around it? And so sometimes, over time, you're going to be able to look back with greater clarity. And there's a whole bunch of things like that in history. But it's tough when you're, when you're looking at this exact story, we don't fully get into the skin of it. But what I want you to see is the tensions that are in existence right now. So even though those three Supreme Court rulings had taken place, by the spring of 1961, 
Remember, board versus, Brown versus the Board of Education was 1954. This has been seven years. By the spring of 1961, the colored and white signs were still hanging, and drivers were still forcing black interstate passengers to the back of the bus. So you have a law, but it's not being enforced. So I want, I'm going to hint at something as we're going forward here. That there is something that has been accomplished by the highest law in the land, and yet that does not mean our nation is compliant with it. Think about spiritually. Remember when Jesus is on that cross and he's going to say, it is finished. Something is going to be accomplished on that cross, which is higher than any Supreme Court ruling, by the way. And yet, if you look practically down into the individual states, you're going to see that it's not always implemented. And so it could make you think that nothing has happened in our country. Didn't we have a Supreme Court ruling on that? Yeah, but if there's no enforcement of it, then the South is literally thumbing their nose at the federal government. So John F. Kennedy. Now, I, I've wondered how much I should get into John F. Kennedy. He's a very interesting president. And as of right now, I'm hardly getting into him at all. I know some of you were hoping I would cover the assassination. Uh, I'm not even planning on that, okay? That's, that's dangerous territory, by the way, guys. Uh, I don't think you realize how many conspiracy theories are uh, floating around about that. But John F. Kennedy, he's a Democrat. Now, most people associate civil rights with Democrats. The president at the time of a lot of this stuff was Dwight Eisenhower, who's a Republican. And you know that John F. Kennedy is in a very difficult situation because he's, he's between a rock and a hard place because the Southern vote was essential to his presidency. You know what the Southern vote is? Completely Democrat at this time. It's the Democrat stronghold of the nation is where all this problem is. Isn't that just one of the great ironies of the storyline? What, what, it's just like a total twist on our reality because it's the exact opposite now is the way most, it's been presented. And yet John F. Kennedy, that's where he got elected from, the South. And so he's in a difficult position because you have these three Supreme Court rulings and he's the face of the federal government now. And so what are you going to do, John? Are you going to enforce these things or are you going to turn a blind eye and let the South get away with this criminal activity? Uh, that's rough uh, for him. So there's a picture of John F. Kennedy. He has a, there's a lot of great pictures of John F. Kennedy. This is right when uh, high-end photography was coming into being, and I think he sort of liked being in front of the camera. I'm not, not sure. Beverly Gage says this, major pillars of the Jim Crow system had long ago been declared unconstitutional. Little was being done, however, to translate those fine words into deeds. Now, if you could take the spiritual equivalent of that and recognize that major pillars of the flesh, the old man system, the power of sin, had been dismantled. They'd been declared unconstitutional. They would been, had been nullified at the cross. However, little was being done in the church today to translate those fine words, those fine accomplishments into deeds. Why is it that so much of the church is living under the thumb of an old system, a Jim Crow system, that actually puts Christians under the power of the old man and sin when I could have sworn at the cross it was declared null and void, that the, our, the enemy that has always held us at bay has been dismissed. He has been nullified of his power. So introducing the Freedom Riders. Remember, that's the name of this thing, the Freedom Riders. It's a plan designed to force Kennedy's hand. So there's a group uh, of blacks and whites from the North that are going to be sick and tired of the fact that all these things were declared 
uh, at the federal level, but it's not being implemented at the, at the state level. It's like, this is, this is not right, guys, that there's most of the black community is down in the South. So the, one, the group of people that would be benefited by these constitutional uh, d- decisions are actually not enjoying any of its benefits and they're still being lynched, they're still being uh, segregated, they're still, being, uh, under, they're still under the Jim Crow system. But the Supreme Court, the most powerful law of the land, has issued a statement saying this is wrong and now the federal government needs to stand up and do something. But they're not. They're not doing anything. You see, they don't want a civil war any more than the rest of us, right? This is challenging. Beverly Gage says it this way, the chief goal of the freedom ride was to insist that the federal government enforce its own laws. A full two weeks before departing, the freedom riders sent letters to the FBI, the Justice Department, and the White House outlining the freedom riders' itinerary and asking for federal protection. So all these whites and blacks are going to get on uh, buses and they're going to intermingle on these Greyhound buses and they're going to go right through the southern states and when they show up someplace, the whites are going to go into the black bathrooms and the blacks are going to go into the white bathrooms. They're going to sit at the coffee counters that belong to the whites. The blacks will sit there and the whites will go sit in the colored section and we're going to make a statement that the South is not going to dictate how we're going to live, that it's not going to oppress these people anymore. So they tell the federal government they're going to do this, and what they're asking for is federal protection. Why don't you protect us doing this? Because what we're doing is constitutional, right? What we're doing is in agreement with the law, right? (laughs) Well, uh, they're forcing Kennedy to respond. This is a rather awkward moment in his presidency. The New York Times in 1960. So we're in 1961, just to give you a heads up. And John F. Kennedy has been elected. In my next uh, episode, I'm actually going to go back to 1960. I know it's sort of terrible that I'm going to do that. I almost swapped them, but this one just seemed like a nice fit for Friday. And, but I'm going to talk a little bit about his election, not much, and then the very first step. So it's all happening at the same time. Birmingham, Alabama is fragmented by the emotional dynamite of racism. Reinforced by the whip, the razor, the gun, the bomb, the torch, the club, the knife, the mob, the police, and many branches of the state's apparatus. Yeah, corrupt is one way of saying it, but Martin Luther King warned the Freedom Riders who says, you won't get through Alabama. And they're like, watch us. You know, we're going to do this thing. And Martin Luther King himself was like, you're not going to make it through Alabama. (laughs) Do you realize how Alabama's wired? They're going to take this as a direct affront. And their entire state will empty out to stop you. You're just in a couple buses, sure enough. So we know a lot about what happened because there's, uh, the FBI has all of its documentation that's been released, so we know a lot. Uh, Gary Rowe, who's one of the top uh, Ku Klux Klan guys, was also an FBI informant. I know, try and figure out that. So the FBI is paying a KKK leader uh, to inform them of act- activities so that they can respond, right? So his, this guy's name is Gary Rowe. I have a picture of him testifying in 1975 uh, and the, <laughs> through some House Judiciary Committee. Uh, and he, there, this was very offensive to a lot of people. He was doing this because he was in witness protection. 
But people were like, he still looks like he's wearing a hood of the KKK. So, I mean, this was offensive to people even when he was testifying. But yeah, that's how he testified, guys. Uh, It's a rather awkward picture. Beverly Gage says this, in the summer of 1960, so this has happened in the spring of 1961, the Freedom Rides. In the summer of 1960, he, Gary Rowe, became his claverns, that's like a gathering of KKK people, their night hawk in chief. So he's sort of the head head dude there uh, at his local clavern, charged with recruiting members and personally hoisting the burning cross. That's quite an honor. By fall, he had moved up to an action squad that carried out the group's most secretive and violent operations. Under those auspices, in April 1961, he had participated in an attack on an, on an elderly white couple temporarily caring for a black child. Isn't that interesting? Even when a white person would care for a black child, that was something that the KKK would put down. Uh, we don't intermingle, we don't care, we don't minister some kind of grace and mercy in that direction. He also helped to plan the much more ambitious scheme aimed at the Freedom Riders, all while keeping the FBI in the loop. So the FBI actually knows what's happening. The FBI is going to do nothing because Hoover is convinced that States' rights, he doesn't want to violate states' rights. I mean, he's a federal bureau of investigation, and it's not, you know, his, this isn't his jurisdiction to just, like, stick his nose in to protect someone. And the Freedom Riders are sort of getting what they deserve. This is like Hoover's mindset on it. It's like they're the ones that are antagonizing. They're coming up and poking someone in the face and saying, hey, you know, get out of my way. I mean, is it any question that the people are going to punch him in the nose when they do? And so Hoover's going to do nothing with the FBI. So police chief Jamie Moore, I shouldn't say he does nothing. He feels like he has a solution. Maybe I should say it that way. So police chief of uh, Birmingham, Alabama is a guy named Jamie Moore. And so he's ex-FBI, and he's now the chief of police in Birmingham. So there's the only picture that exists for uh, Chief Jamie Moore. And uh, so the reason I'm sharing that is Hoover feels like he has an insider opportunity that when they're coming through Birmingham, which is one of the biggest test points right here in this whole thing, Birmingham, Alabama, it's like that's where Martin Luther King's pretty confident they're not going to make it through. Well, he knows the chief of police. And so he says, hey, uh, Jamie, could you do something on our behalf to make sure there's no incident here? Gary Rose shares the KKK's plan with the FBI, the plan. What is, what is the KKK planning to do? To utterly destroy the Freedom Riders, yet to make it appear a, 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 as a breakout of spontaneous violence. So here's how it goes down. Beverly Gage is going to describe how Roe, Gary Roe is going to describe it to the FBI. As Roe and his fellow Klansmen envisioned it, the attack on the Freedom Riders was supposed to play out in several distinct stages. On Sunday, May 14th, when the Freedom Riders would be departing Atlanta and heading west into Alabama... A few Klansmen would buy tickets aboard the buses, posing as ordinary passengers. Once the vehicle or vehicles crossed the Alabama state border, those men would begin intimidating and attacking the activists. Then, when they reached the town of Anniston, about 65 miles east of Birmingham, a large crowd of supporters would be waiting to lend a hand. If either bus made it beyond Anniston, 30 more Klansmen would be on call at the Birmingham bus terminals to deliver the final blows. According to Rowe, the Birmingham police knew all about the scheme and had agreed to play their part by delaying any intervention once the beatings began. Sergeant Thomas Cook, the Klan's main point of contact with the police department, promised that the Klansmen could beat them, bomb them, maim them, kill them for a full 15 minutes before worrying that the police would come. 
Can you guys understand why the black community doesn't have a lot of trust with the police? You know, so some of these defund the police things, which we, to be honest, don't really get. Uh, and if you've never had a bad experience with the police, and I don't even like having the police painted up as this, right? I don't like it when this becomes the entire picture of our country, because that's an unfair statement too, right? But you can at least have a sensitivity point to say, I get it. I understand why they don't have a tremendous confidence that they have their best in mind. Hoover's ace up his sleeve. So he has chief of police, Jamie Moore. Remember that? And so he's expecting Jamie to kick in because he's over the Birmingham police. The Freedom Riders run into massive resistance. So May 14th, 1961, they're going to take off. And here they are taking off. I don't remember if it was from New York City. They're, they're from some big city up north. And they're all happy and everything's looking golden and it's going to go great. And they're going to run into some problems. Moore, remember Jamie Moore? He's quickly betrayed Hoover's trust. On the night of Saturday, May 13th, he called the local field office to say that he was leaving town, ostensibly to visit his mother for Mother's Day, when the Freedom Riders were due to arrive in Birmingham. He suggested that they communicate any future updates about the buses to Sergeant Cook. Well, Thomas Cook is KKK. The very man, as both Moore and the FBI knew, who was helping to plan the attacks. Beverly Gage says this, while they slashed the tires and pounded on the metal frame, the police were nowhere to be seen. Eventually, a desultory band of officers showed up to escort the bus away, only to abandon it once again at the town line. A few miles outside of Anniston, the bus rolled to a stop disabled by its slashed tires and became a sitting target for the carloads of Klansmen trailing behind. After several more minutes of jeering and taunting, someone threw a burning pile of rags into the bus through a broken window, sending black smoke swirling through the interior. A few minutes later, just after the passengers had fled the bus, the gas tank exploded. The confrontation finally ground to a halt when highway patrolmen showed up and fired warning shots into the air. They looked the other way as the Klansmen dispersed, failing to note any license plates or physical descriptions. The second bus from Trailway showed up in Anniston an hour later to find a deserted station and no mention of what had taken place. Fatefully, the driver proceeded on to Birmingham where the next phase of the plan was already underway. Several Klansmen had boarded this second bus back in Atlanta, posing as passengers. Before the bus pulled out of Anniston, they began to terrorize riders, pummeling their targets into unconsciousness and then hauling their bodies to the back of the bus. The greatest violence came in Birmingham itself, where several dozen Klansmen lay in wait. They allowed the passengers to exit the bus and enter the terminal before the assault began, a full 15 minutes during which the unarmed passengers, including several innocent bystanders, were beaten, kicked, and punched, sometimes by half a dozen men at a time. When the 15 minutes were up, the Birmingham police finally appeared to clear the station and enforce the law. So I just have a few pictures uh, from this event, which is very rare to have any live pictures because almost every single event like this throughout history so far has not had any photography with it. Uh, but this uh, entire bus is going to be completely destroyed. Uh, is there any justice? After all, not one participant in the massive resistance response to the Freedom Riders was charged with a crime. Not one. If the Klansmen had been able to keep their mouths shut, the whole saga might have ended then and there. Just another of the gruesome flare-ups that seemed to characterize the Southern struggle over segregation. But the plotters had boasted around town about what was going to happen, and so photographers and reporters were on site when the Trailways bus rolled in. What appeared, and this is a CBS national correspondent. These guys are never 
privy to this information. And here they were. This guy was able to see everything that happened. He says, what appeared to be spontaneous outbursts of anger were actually carefully planned and susceptible to having been easily prevented or stopped had there been a wish to do so. Now that is going to go around the country. And this is going to spike an entire new movement. And this is going to force Kennedy's hand. Kennedy can't just sit by. Uh, and so the violence visited upon the Freedom Riders was front page news. Even in Birmingham, the local paper ran a page one photograph of the melee at the bus terminal. A circle of angry white men punching, kicking, and beating a hunched over victim. One of those men was Gary Rowe, the Bureau's prize informant. So on the front page of the paper, uh, you get this. So there's Gary Rowe right there. Remember the guy that was testifying in 1975, the one that's the informant? Uh, these guys are going to rush at the photographer after he takes this picture, and they're going to destroy his camera. But this photo made it. Uh, so usually there's never any sign of what takes place. And yet we don't have a great picture, but we have a picture of it right there. So here's the front page, or it's, this is in the newspaper the next day. And so what usually gets covered up is actually now uh, going uh, nationwide, even worldwide. So where was Hoover and where was Bobby? You guys don't know Bobby Kennedy yet, but he's the attorney general, and I'm going to talk about him on Monday. And so the ones responsible for this, the ones that have the federal power to do something, uh, that's Hoover with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He has entire teams that can deal with interstate uh, travel, like buses that are going across state lines. And uh, Bobby Kennedy, of course, is over the Justice Department. He has federal marshals that he could easily bring into this situation. However, he's going to turn a blind eye, just hoping the whole thing will go away. I don't know if he was in cahoots with Hoover, and Hoover's like, yeah, I have Jamie Moore down there. There won't be an issue. But this is Bobby Kennedy's famous statement. I never knew the Freedom Riders were traveling down there. Yeah, that didn't go over so well. <clears throat> Two historic wrong approaches to the Freedom Riders. This is where we're going to start to come into the storyline, guys. Because what we have is, have you ever noticed that it's hard for the church when someone actually says, look, don't we have this in Scripture? Aren't we supposed to be living this? Aren't we supposed to be actively engaged in doing this? And then people are like, well, you know what, there's, you know, it's just culturally unsound, unwise to do that. Oh, you could say that here too. This is culturally unsound and unwise. They have legal right to do what they're doing. The Freedom Riders do. And they know it. And that's why they're pressing the issue. However, in the natural realm, it's not in agreement. There is a power in this natural realm in the South that seems stronger than the Freedom Riders' desire to overcome this. And that oftentimes is the same with us. Have you ever noticed that you want to get rid of your sin? You know that Jesus did something about your sin on the cross, and you're rather tired of it. And you're tired of that cyclical pattern of defeat where you make up your mind you're going to not do this anymore, and then you do it all over again. And then you're like, okay, I'm not going to do that, and then you do it all over again. It's that wheel. And it's a miserable pattern that we want out of. So it's not that we don't recognize that there should be something. It's just that we lack the power to do it, just like the Freedom Riders do here. The Freedom Riders, with federal support, could actually do something. But what if the federal support does nothing? And I, that's sort of like us in our spiritual lives when we don't understand the power of, I don't want to call it federal support, but of the Holy Spirit, the power of the kingdom of heaven to enable us to do things in our life. Look at uh, 
Hoover's going to construe them as agitators. I've noticed it with a lot of people that have adopted. And since I've adopted four kids, I'm sensitized to it and I understand. And that is, when you adopt, you oftentimes have challenges that families that don't adopt don't have. Because you're, you're dealing with the integration of someone else's family, their DNA, their genetic history into your home. There's different thoughts, there's different behaviors, things that are foreign to your environment. And it creates more drama than the typical family would have. It's beautiful, by the way. It's an extraordinary picture of the kingdom of heaven, but it's, it's hard, right? And people from the outside could say, well, you invited it upon yourself. I've heard this so many times. It's like, well, you know, you didn't have to adopt. Yeah, you didn't have to. You did also didn't have to go and evangelize this person and get bopped in the nose and have a bloody nose. There's all sorts of things you could avoid. But as Christians, we're supposed to engage with what the word of God commissions us to do. And when we do, we do get bloody noses. We do have challenges. We do have difficulties. We do have inconveniences. And the body of Christ, sort of like Hoover, oftentimes looks as if we're the agitators. We're creating drama for our life instead of actually entering the drama that God has called us to enter into. And so Hoover does nothing to help which is the way the church oftentimes is. They're hands off. It's like, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with that person. That person is like actually living out the true Christian life. I mean, they could end up in prison. They could end up being jeered, mocked, ridiculed. Yeah, you're exactly right. That is precisely what would happen. If you get on a bus and try and drive through the South in, a, in mixed company and go into the colored bathroom, if you're a white person, how about if you're a black person going into the white bathroom? I mean, what were these guys thinking? Yeah, you see, they know what the law is, and they're simply testing it, which is ironically a great picture of what we're called to do as believers. Let's prove the work of the cross. Let's prove it in our life. Practically, let's get on the bus and start heading into that dangerous territory. However, here's one thing we need. We sort of need our Hoover Bobby system, which is the kingdom of heaven. us. It's the federal power. It's the high-level power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. Bobby Kennedy is the other side of what we do, which is to plead ignorant and turn away. So I, I didn't know I was supposed to be doing that. Oh, I didn't know anything about this. You see, if we just don't see something, then maybe we're not responsible for it. There are a lot of things in our culture today that we have almost trained ourselves not to see. I don't see that. I, I, don't, I don't know anything about what you're talking about, like abortion. It's like, oh, you know, because to think about it means to probably need to respond to it because it's a moral crisis. What are we supposed to do? And that's part of what the Spirit of God is inviting us into. Similar back then, there are white people in the South that know this is wrong. But what are they supposed to do? There are black people that know that the Supreme Court has made a decision, but they're not, in, they're not testing it. They're not just walking into a white bathroom or drinking from a white drinking fountain to test it. Why? Because they'll likely die when they do. And one thing that's been proven is no white person that ever follows Jim Crow and puts down a black person has ever been convicted of anything in the South up to this point. I mean, so what confidence do you have? And that sounds like our experience as the church. It's like, yeah, our experience shows that there's really no power to this whole thing. Yeah, we have this declaration at the cross of freedom, but how much freedom are we enjoying? Who's going to stand up, get on the bus, and start heading straight into this territory? And that's precisely 
what this message is asking. So on the screen, it says, what is the Supreme Court ruled? And then I, I crossed out Supreme Court. I said, what is the cross of Christ ruled? Because the cross of Christ is going to accomplish something. It is going to declare something. It is going to make the devil's power, the power of sin, the power of death, the power of the old man over your life, null and void. It's very similar to what is happening back here in this time. There is a federal decree of something. Listen, this is just a short list, guys. We are no longer slaves unto sin, Romans 6.6. 6. We are no longer disabled from righteous living. See, in the South, there were a whole bunch of things that the black community, though they were equals, could not access. And so, just like many of us, we, when we are living in the power of sin or under the power of sin, we cannot actually bear the fruit of righteousness. We can esteem it, but we can't bear it. We can't bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But... According to the cross, we are no longer disabled from righteous living, Romans 6.18. We are no longer barred from eating at the table of the king. That's an interesting way of saying it, but it's sort of, there's a whole counter that only the white people can sit at this counter in a restaurant. And we're no longer barred from eating at the table of our king. It's an interesting way of saying it, but that's Hebrews 7.19 and 10.22. And then in Romans 16.20, we are no longer under the boot of that plantation owner, the devil. We've always been slaves, but we've been set free. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to the devil. We are now slaves of righteousness. And these are facts. This is the truth, and it's higher than even the Supreme Court. And so what are we going to do about it? One of the things that intrigues me about the Freedom Riders is that they are going to test this. And I really like that. Now, the guys are not going to have it easy. Okay, they're going to be beat up. No one actually died, which is good. Finally, I get to tell you a story where someone doesn't die. However, no one is going to die, but it's extreme abuse. I mean, it is extreme beatings that these guys are taking. I mean, 15 on one in every situation, and they're just pummeling them, right? Why? Because they're in an integrated bus. <laughs> because they dared to test this law. And here's what I can say. The devil is sort of waiting in the Birmingham bus station for us too. If we dare move forward on any of these points, yeah, there is a little bit of mob violence that's incited against us. Now here's where the story takes a different turn. Because one of the things that the Freedom Riders were lacking is federal protection. What if you knew that you had federal protection? I mean, the Freedom Riders didn't, didn't really have it, right? However, that's an imperfect system. We represent a different system, and the laws that we are testing, God is actually saying, I'll back you up if you go. We're like, Do I have a full assurance that if I go, that means you're gonna send your federal marshals with me, right? I'll go before you and behind you. I'll surround you as a shield. We'll quell every single fiery dart the KKK shoots at you. Every single one. If you knew you had that sort of authority with you, you know what? Riding that freedom bus might not sound that bad, right? 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. 
Ephesians 6, 11 through 16. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now look at the, I'm going to go through all the, the armor of God, and then we're going to get to verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. There is an assault. There is a standoff. There is a uh, conspiracy of the powers of darkness to hinder our forward movement, where we would implement and test the accomplishment of the cross in our life, which is what some of you have run into during these five week, this five-week training. When you've stepped forward, uh, there's been a lot of noise. And that's actually very normal. What you need to do is keep going. What you need to know is that you actually have federal marshals of the spiritual sort attending you. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. James 4, 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So there seems to be a disposition of resistance where we say, I know what was accomplished on the cross. I'm confident of that. And I know that God has given me the grace to be able to prove the realities of that cross in this life. And I am not going to be intimidated by the enemy. I mean, it would be rather intimidating driving down the, through the south in a bus and having the streets lined with KKK. And they're declaring that we're going to stop you. We're going to stop you. We're going to stop you. And you have to have the confidence that the one with you is greater than the one with them. You have to know that if God be for you, they can't stand against you. You have to have a confidence that no weapon fashioned against you is going to prosper. You have to have the confidence that when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. So look at this, guys. Federal marshals attend the next round of this. Now, this is a better picture of what we have. I love that picture of that uh, young black man looking up. That's sort of you there looking up going, uh, all right, uh, I'm going to sleep well tonight. <laughs> Isn't that a great picture, guys? It's For those of you that are getting this via podcast, all these federal marshals are standing there, and there's the bus, and they just surround it. Talk about being surrounded as with a shield. This is what we have. To implement the power and the merit and the efficacy of the cross, we have the federal marshals that are going before us. The question is, do we realize that? Because our federal marshals, and this is our challenge, are not visible. We can't see them. We apprehend our federal marshals by faith. And we move forward on our bus, seeing the streets lined with those in their white capes and white caps, we see those in the natural realm, but do we know who is standing by us in the spiritual realm? Do we understand that, and will we continue forward? And when Dr. Martin Luther King says, you won't make it through Alabama, he says, watch me. We will, in fact, make it through Alabama. You see, what's going to change the tide in this whole civil rights thing is happening right here. And it is, this is funny, because I'm not exactly sure how to, how to view this in every regard, because there's certain political ramifications of the federal government beginning to shove states aside, and I'm not overly a big fan of some of that, right? However, that's spiritually, if I could give you the picture of it, it's pretty profound, because it's when the federal government steps up and starts enforcing their Supreme Court rulings 
that you're going to see the states bend. And for us, we have a federal government, in the, his name is Jesus Christ, and he has accomplished something on the cross, and he has given us the federal marshals known as the Holy Spirit. We even have legions of angels at our side. We have everything we need for life and godliness to make this ride, this freedom ride, to declare in our life and in this dark territory, which sorry for those of you that are from the South, this dark territory known as the South, that it will be bent to the purposes of Jesus Christ. Look at that. That lady's sleeping and then right over her head is a federal marshal. Isn't that just an amazing picture? I mean, it's hard to, to say, oh, there's the kingdom of heaven right there. That's how we make our ride. But it is, I mean, it is pretty profound if you were to think about it. Look at that. I, th th this is a photographer from Life Magazine that is going to risk his life to actually join this trip. However, he probably was sort of happy. He's, that's probably why he's taking all the pictures of the federal marshals. He's reminding himself he's safe as long as he has them. But that's, I mean, that's fairly remarkable just to look out our window and imagine. Remember uh, Elisha and his servants? They're surrounded by the Syrian army and his, his servant is a little nervous, uh, right? It's like a last master, what should we do? And Elijah says, open my servant's eyes that he would see. And what does the servant see? He sees mountains full of horses and chariots of fire all around. Do you see your federal marshals all around? Do you realize that what you've been called to do in this natural world cannot be stopped? That you have everything you need on the legal front to now enforce it in this natural realm. It's a, it's a strange thought for us to realize practically and legally how this works, but so many of us, we've only seen the burning bus and we've never really understood what it is to stand and to walk forward and recognize the enemy can't stop me. You see, physically, we are touchable, but spiritually, the enemy can't hinder our forward progression. It's just, it's the way Jesus was too. The body, we're the body of Christ. So look at the body of Christ. No man could lay hands on him. He would just slip through the crowd everywhere. And then he's going to turn himself into the hands of sinners. He's going to turn himself over into the hands of sinners and he's going to be crucified. And I would say that's a pretty good pattern for our life too, where we have a calling. And if that's the freedom ride, we're going to finish the freedom ride. But there comes a day when God may want to use us in another way too, and that is to expend us. And so, yeah, we may hand our body over into the hands of sinners, or he may hand it over, and we may be martyrs. It's possible. We may end up in prison. It's possible. However, we are going to complete our mission. That's the confidence I want you to have, is that you have federal marshals on board, and everything you need to carry out this mission has been supplied. Father, I ask that you would remind us afresh of your goodness and your grace and your power and your might, and that greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Lord, we ought not to be the ones intimidated. The enemy ought to be the one quaking in his boots. He's the defeated one. The law has been passed at the cross. It has been established. It is done. It is finished. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we would test that law. 
but we would not test it absent the Hoover Bobby power, but that we would test it with the full power of the kingdom of heaven backing us up. It is not in our muscular strength that we will enforce these things. It's in your power, Lord Jesus, that these things are done. Teach us as the church how to do this. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.